the next episode of Nerd Clicks and Chill will start in three, two, one, zero. Hey everybody, this is Nick. And this is Carrie. And we are Nerd Flicks and Chill, and it's time for another one of our Westworld episode recaps. This one is Season 2, Episode 9, Vanishing Point, the penultimate episode of the season. But before we get into our recap of the episode, Carrie, where are you in the world today? (laughs) Today, I am in Glasgow, Scotland. Nice. Yes, I'm sitting at my desk in my hotel room. I have a view of the River Clyde. Right in front of me that I can see out the window and the BBC Scotland building is right in front of me. Awesome. So you are going to be uh, from many different locations here for the next, uh, for for the foreseeable future. Yeah, uh, I'm not at liberty to say, but it will be for a while uh, that I will be on the road, it seems like. And uh, I will at least be here in Scotland for about three weeks, and then I head down, head down to England after that for various cities. Oh, nice. Usually it's been me on work travel, and you've been recording from your home location, and now we've kind of switched roles a little bit. You're going to be the one recording from uh, glorious locations across the globe. Yes, and starting off with Glasgow, Scotland. They've been, they've been treating me very, very well. Awesome. So, what were your impressions of this episode as a whole? We know Season 2, Episode 8, Kiksuya, that one was one of our favorites of the entire series. What were your um, thoughts on Vanishing Point? Well, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if it's a combination of the fact that I had just been on uh, an eight-hour flight and was suffering from jet lag, but... I was very confused by this episode. There was a lot in there that seemed conflicting for me. So, I mean, even though we're getting ready to talk about this, I still feel that I need to watch this episode another time. Hmm. Now, for me watching it, I felt like my second viewing, I enjoyed it a lot more than my first because... When I first watched it on Sunday night, I got to tell you, this was not my favorite episode. No, not, it wasn't not to mine say either. that it's not. Yeah, not to say that it wasn't good. There, there. I mean, actually, it has one of the biggest jaw drop moments I think for the entire series uh, in this episode, and it has some really great individual moments. But to me, it didn't really push the story forward as much as I was hoping. It's still a really solid hour of television, but. To me, it kind of did a lot of backtracking and kind of telling us things that we already knew. So I think those were some of my issues. But when I watched it a second time, I wound up liking it a lot more. The dramatic stuff really worked well for me the second time. Yeah, I, I, this wasn't one of my favorites either. And like I said, there was a lot of it that I, I, I felt was kind of confusing because there were certain parts of the storyline that seemed to go back and forth and like I said that kind of conflicted with each other and and just going a lot of back and forth it seemed like and uh yeah I'm excited to talk about it with you because you know like I said I, I, I had just ha- been on a really long flight so I'll I'll chalk it up to that hopefully uh you can <laughs> explain it and clarify it to me and any other listeners that might be in the same situation 
Yeah, cool. And I also think that my expectations may have been um, kind of falsely set based off of what we've seen in penultimate episodes of Game of Thrones over yeah, the years. Yeah. Where we've been trained as an audience that the penultimate episode is like the really big one. Yeah. And Westworld doesn't really follow that template. It is the finale where uh, everything kind of culminates. So that might have been just kind of a false expectation that I had going into it. Well, I also feel though that this season has just had so much build up. And and for me, I I feel as almost every episode has been almost even better than the last. And that you've had this rising trajectory of the story and of each of the episodes and and so yes, I did have high expectations of it. And yeah, some of it is because of that tr- I guess training that we have, um, that we've been trained by Game of Thrones as to how the, the formula works. But yeah, this one seemed to kind of fall flat for me and, and take a little bit of a dive, but I'm not counting it out yet. Yeah. I, and, and one of the things kind of right off the bat as we get into the recap, the opening of this episode did something that I really grew to dislike that The Walking Dead does all the time. Uh, back when I was still watching that show, which I've long since given up. But The Walking Dead used to do these things where you would see like vignettes of the end of the episode and then the entire episode itself builds up to that end that you saw. Yeah. And that's a lot of what happens here. In the opening kind of montage, we have these man in black voiceovers, and it's cutting to different events that we see unfold throughout the episode. Yeah, and that was um, some of the dialogue that we got for the preview for this one as well. Um, So it was, you know, they started off right off the bat. It's like, okay, I've heard this. But then... I, I guess it's one of those things that, that Westworld does so much that the first time you hear or see something, you see it, you know, just how it's given. But then when you see it again, you're now seeing it in context and it maybe has a different meaning to it. So I guess, you know, that's what they were going with it. But it it didn't have the impact on me that I think that it was supposed to. Yeah, I think the the non-linear storytelling in this particular episode is actually an homage that will get called out a little bit later on. Uh, it's an homage to one of those books that the man in black puts his profile in. Uh, mm. But we'll get to that when we get there. I think that's okay. that's that's kind of what was going on there. But that opening sequence is really just man in black voiceover with different cuts of dialogue that we see uh, cut in with different scenes throughout the episode of his wife's suicide and events that take place throughout the rest of this episode. Now, again, like we still aren't we, like we're not getting anything really super new here. Uh, we know that we're going to get something that's a character focus on the man in black. So uh, in that opening sequence, we get a little bit of kind of, um, you know, ground laying for what's about to happen. And then we go into uh, maybe the more, the more established opening of this big gala that is in honor of William and it kind of shows how respected he is, how everybody's there for him, um, you know, and his his wife. We're seeing his wife in this episode as well. So we're really getting the character of William fleshed out in the real world. Now, did I miss something? Have they even said what it is? I mean, we know what he does with Delos or that he's kind of at the helm. But what is it that they're celebrating about him? I mean, are yeah, we too? I'm not are we? Sure. 
are we led to believe that it has something to do with the Delos project? Or, um, cause I remember back in the first season, you know, when the men in black was sitting at the campfire and there was another guest that was there that kind of, Hey, you know, I just want to thank you for everything that you've done. And, you know, he cuts him off. So we can't really hear what it was that happened. And now he's being honored for this. And I'm just wondering, it, it what definitely was it? has nothing, it definitely has nothing to do with the Delos project because nobody knows about that except for a few people within the company and Ford. Um, we do find out that I believe this is celebrating some philanthropy, mm. um, that the, you know, some philanthropic cause, um, that gets kind of told to us in this episode a couple different points. Yeah. But yeah, it is very vague. It is very dreamlike. His real world life is is very much in a haze, and I think that's intentional by the writers. We don't even know his last name. That's true. So I think that's that's done intentionally to kind of keep him as the man that we know, as the man in black and not William. You know? That's true, because they really have separated it that way. I mean, even as we see him as, you know, quote unquote, the man in black, we don't really hear to him referred to as William very often. True. Very true. I mean, we heard his wife um, call him, what'd she call him? Um, Billy or Will, or I don't know what she, she called him. She calls him Billy. That's what it was. It was, I remember it was a nickname, jet lag, you know, I'll just blame everything on that. Um, you know, she calls him by a nickname and she says, I know you don't like to be called that. And, and I think we heard, um, Delos, you know, referred to as, as William. But other than that, other than when he's, we see him in flashbacks and he's younger, he's, he's never really addressed by name. Yeah. If I don't remember correctly. The other thing that happens in this opening gala sequence is that, he seems to see somebody who looks like Dolores. It's actually not Dolores at all. It's just a, a server at this gala. And it kind of is starting to um, almost give these vibes as though, like, not that the park is calling him, but, like, you, you get the vibe throughout this episode that it was the park was the thing that kept the urge down. Like, there was a monster inside, and going to the park was an outlet for the rage that he had built up. Right. And it kind of physically manifests itself sometimes in the way he kind of looks at his hand and, like, a twitch that he gets in his arm. Yeah, and at first, I did think it was Dolores at first. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, so much later, and they're still having them do... Oh, wait, that's not her. But, yeah, and it just... um I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's that the park is calling to him or if, um, he feels that he's more at home there. Like, cause I know it was such a big thing in the first season where it was like he, the whole thing was that he could really be himself when he's there. And, and it seems like when he's in the quote sure. unquote real world, he's having to pretend. And, uh, as opposed to the other way around that when people yeah. go to the park, they pretend or whatever, but he feels real there. Um, and I think he even refers to that or says something about that later in this episode too. 
And I think this this opening sequence at the gala really kind of draws out the contrast. There yeah. is the highly respected man in the real world, but then like there's the violent man that we know in Westworld, and it feels as though there is this gravitational pull pulling him towards Westworld as a means to control the own the the darkness within himself, which is something that is kind of outed in the very opening dialogue of this episode. Yeah, and when you see him in that setting, when he's there at that gala, he's just he's very disconnected. Like he's almost not even interacting with anybody, you know, even though right. it's supposed to be for him. Uh, he's just, he's very disconnected and separated from everything. And I think, you know, even at one point we see him, you know, walking down a hallway by himself. And even though it's his night, it's like, he just doesn't want to have anything to do with it. It's, you know, it, it seems like it's, it's being done for other people, but he, it's, it's probably, it's being done for the people that are throwing it for him. <laughs> and, and he doesn't really care about any of it. Yeah, well, and there's a, there's a, an interesting moment in this scene, too, where his wife says to him, you know, everybody's here for you. What else could possibly compare to this? And yeah. it's just after that that he sees the, um, the kind of his, what he thinks he kind of acknowledges as Dolores at first. And I think that's it. It's, it's this idea that, you know, what else could be like this? Uh, being able to be as sick and craven and horrible as I want to be, being able to, to release the darkness inside of me. Yeah. And that then kind of bleeds into this scene where he wakes up and it's him and his daughter and they're talking and, you know, she thinks that he is there as a means to punish himself. And, um, you know, Emily talks about blame that, that she kind of carries as well with this whole jewelry box thing and having pushed her mother away. Basically, the implication here that she's trying to say is that it's not too late for us. Right. And which was, I was kind of confused by because, you know, leading up to this, you know, she's, she, uh, at one point is saying, no, I'm not trying to leave this park. And then, you know, she says to the, to Ghost Nation, no, he's my responsibility and I'm going to take him. And, you know, we both want him to suffer. And I'm guessing she just said that to, be able to have him be released that that would you know ghost nation i guess she thinks would understand that and and now again because when she was speaking with her father before it was you know let's leave this place i'm here to get you out and then she's talking about it again it's like okay then what is it does she really want to try and get him out is she really trying to save him in some way because then later on she says something about i know about this project i'm told i'm in i want to be involved in it i'm like well then what what is her purpose what is she really doing there yeah i mean it makes i had a hard time with this at first because yeah. it felt really muddy like it feels yes. like her motivations are are really kind of all over the place yeah that's, that, that's think... that conflict that i was talking about that just didn't make sense I do think it is strategic on her part. I do think she does have a play. But at the same time, I think that the motivations get a little bit muddied along the way. And I don't know if that's um, the writing or if that's just her kind of maybe making this up as she goes. Because what she says to Ghost Nation effectively is true. Where she says, my way will be worse. Because we find out that her ultimate motivation, we find out later in this episode, is to bring her father down. But we, like, 
is she trying to ingratiate herself to him here to build trust, to get him to um, admit to some of his wrongdoing? I think that those things, I think, are happening, but they're covered up in this episode a little bit. Yeah, and that's where I was left at, at the same that you were. I was a bit confused, and it just seemed to... That's that juggling act, that back and forth, that um, conflicting stuff. And it's like, what? So what is it that she's doing? Because it's like, it's one thing, and then it's another. Oh, but wait, it's this over here, but now it's back to this one. And that I was so confused. And, I, and one of my frustrations as well was that it didn't – not that everything has to be tied up perfectly in a bow, but we're not getting a payoff to it. It's just it was ended. Yeah. So I- that leaves me frustrated. Yeah, and I think that that in the end, her goal was to get him out of the park, get him, like, ingratiate herself to him so he would reveal the different, you know, secrets that he has been hiding for all these years, only then to later expose him. I think that is her plan. I think it is spelled out in this episode, but I don't think it's spelled out very well. Yeah, I would agree with you on that one. So... We then get a scene with Dolores and Teddy where they come across Ghost Nation. Uh, the Ghost Nation guys believe that the Valley Beyond is a tool to another world, to a place untouched by blood. Uh, Dolores, you know, believes that it's something that she's going to turn against the humans. It's the key to our survival in that world which I think is an interesting line that she gives there. Uh, yeah. We also see Dolores go through the uh, shoot the Ghost Nation guy that we saw. It's a, a callback to episode one where we saw it from the Ghost Nation guy's perspective. Yep, from his memory. Yep. Yeah. And so in this whole blow up, the one thing, the big thing that I took away here is that Dolores has lost her army. Yeah. Well, and I also took away from it, too, that it seems that, um, was it in this one? Yeah, because that's the only time that they encounter them, that the one guy uh, from Ghost Nation seems to have the same ability that Maeve does. Did you get that from it at all? No. Um, it is weird because it seems as though this is Teddy's moment of awakening here. Right. Mm. See, I, at first, I took it as the opposite, which conflicts with what happens later on in the episode. Because what I took it as, you see the guy from Ghost Nation and he's kind of looking over his shoulder and, and Teddy's got his gun drawn. And then he basically withdraws. And I took it as the guy from Ghost Nation doing the Jedi mind trick that Maeve is able to do to get him to not. Cock his gun or uncock his gun. I don't know what you would call that. Uh, that's what I thought. And to me, I was like, oh, Teddy's not awake because we learned in, you know, the last episode or so, uh, two episodes ago, I guess that Maeve found out that she did not have that ability on, um, or she only had that ability on hosts that were not awake yet. And to me, I was like, he has that ability. Teddy's not awake. Hmm. is what i thought but then later on it doesn't seem as if that's the case at all so i was completely wrong my perception of this was that teddy makes the conscious choice to not shoot 
the guy right. from Ghost Nation. The guy from Ghost Nation maybe is a little bit overconfident about that choice as he just walks away. Well, uh, and, and think- that's and that's why I thought he he was the one who was directing Teddy to do that because of that confidence, that swag that I'm thinking. Oh, he just voiceless commanded him to do that. That's that's how I read it. Yeah, and I and you know what? That could just be clunky storytelling. It might be, which is really disappointing because this show to me doesn't suffer from that. Yeah, but it wouldn't be the first time that happened in this episode. There's no. a few things where it's a little bit bumpy, and I think yeah. there, that that could be one of them where you kind of have that you can come away from that scene looking at one of those that one of two ways. Yeah, I don't I don't know if it's storytelling or is it direction? Because that is that's more or less how that that was shot, I think. Well, it's also in the edit too, so Yeah. yeah Either I'm way. Not sure. Yeah, you're right. I think I think this they might have some editing problems with this episode. Uh yeah. we then get to Bernard who has basically kind of hidden away and he can see what's going on with uh what they're doing to Clementine. And essentially they have given Clementine Mave powers here where she can control the hosts, she can issue commands to the hosts, and in this test scene, uh, we see her orchestrating these hosts to just start killing each other. Yeah, they, in essence, to me, it's like, oh my gosh, they made them zombies. They're like these, just to see them come awake, and then all of a sudden just tear apart into each other. It's like, oh my gosh, they're zombies now. And I actually found that quite chilling, and, you know, we've commented before on how Clementine looks, and she's even more ghostly this time. And even just the way that she moved, the way that she so gracefully and delicately holds her hand up and presses it against the glass and then causes all of this, you know, horrific violence, you know, with just completely expressionless and then you know, removes her hand just as gracefully and controlled. I found that, I found it actually quite terrifying and effective. Yeah. And I think that it sets up some interesting possibilities for Clementine's characters. Like, it's, it it makes a lot more sense now from a narrative perspective, kind of where they're going. Because this seems to indicate to me now that she's been given power similar to Maeve, which to me means that her and Maeve are eventually going to have a confrontation with each other. And given their kind of almost mother-daughter relationship that they have in this weird sense, yeah. it's going to make for, I think, a very tragic situation. Yeah, I see that as well, but I'm... I'm- I'm wondering how how exciting, if at all, will that actually be? Because if they both have these uh, voiceless commands, this Jedi mind trick thing, is it just going to be the two of them staring at each other? <laughs> I don't know. And, you know, I don't. Sure. I don't know what they're uh, actually going to do, or is it's just going to be a, a battle of wits, a battle of the mind. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, we also have Ford kind of still in Bernard's head telling him, you know, not to trust the humans. He told him not to trust the humans because they would just as easily see the hosts destroyed. And, you know, Ford talks about having one last thing to do, and that's the last we really see of that particular scene. But, you know, again, it just, it, it's, it's interesting in this episode the way these characters are all confronted with these, like, existential choices. Yeah. 
it's it's a reoccurring theme of this episode uh the existential choices that characters have to make and now we're starting to see at least in this scene that that bernard is is heading towards having to make one of his own So then, because of the way the story is edited, again, it's it's just so strangely edited, this episode. We go back to the man in black talking to his daughter, Emily, and he starts questioning her here about how easy it was to find him. You know, she says that uh, he doesn't like what he can't control. Maybe it was fate. She talks about Uncle Logan and all the things that he would talk about with the with the project. So she seems to to have an idea that there's some sort of secret project going on, you know, she wants in. Right. The other thing she says in this particular scene is that he wants control, that he's all about control, which I think is a, an interesting idea as part of this uh, overall concept that they're trying to do, this packaged immortality. What do you what do you find so interesting about it with the with him controlling it? The idea of like selling control. Like if if you think of it, well not selling control, but the idea of selling immortality but retaining control. Think of the power that a person could wield. Well, yeah. I mean that can make you completely drunk on power. You would you would in essence it would it would like a version of Ford, I guess. Well, you could literally conquer the world. Yeah. You know, if you like, let's say, for example, right, you're some dictator in a in a country and you had the ability to purchase this thing, purchase this immortality from a company where they just keep uploading you into host bodies. But behind the scenes, you were still a puppet of somebody else that could control the copy of your mind that they've made. I'm wondering what the man in black's actual motivation was for all of this, because that doesn't seem like him to me. I don't I mean, know. Young William almost seemed to indicate it, though. Yeah, I don't know. I I mean, I, I know that he's a businessman, and I know that he has or had all of these ideas, but I, I don't know. It just it doesn't it doesn't fit for me for some reason I'm you know there's sure. there's even reference earlier in the episode at the gala about you know him conquering more than one world there are there are allusions to him conquering the world um and i think that yeah i actually if i remember correctly the sequel to the original westworld movie the future world movie wasn't that like the plot of it that i they actually were replacing People in the real world with robot hosts. You know, until you just mentioned it right now, I had never even heard of it. So I have no idea. Ah. I didn't realize there was a sequel to it. There was, yeah. So I don't know. I think that uh, this scene, again, we're seeing Emily kind of playing her game here. But it's not a wealth... I don't know, for some reason... And again, we get back to the way this was maybe edited or the way it was directed or or what. I know after watching it a second time that she's playing a game here, but it does not seem evident at all. And it, it you know, it makes her look. I think it doesn't make her look as strong as she should look in the scene. Yeah. And I'm wondering, I'm I'm wondering where 
the fault lies in that. Like, how could it have been stronger? And I'm wondering if it's because she doesn't have somebody to play off of to reveal her actual game or her actual motivation to that she doesn't have somebody that's in on it with her or something where they can i don't know reveal it or discuss it or you know i'm not sure um i I don't know what would have made it stronger yeah i think the only out that they have here as a justifiable excuse is that they want the audience to be a little bit unsure as to whether or not she's actually a host because in this particular scene, the man in black starts doubting it himself when he's like, ah, it's awfully convenient for you to find me. This place is huge. So right. So seems to be sowing the seeds of doubt, and maybe they want the audience to kind of doubt, too. But to me, that doesn't work because he's already had that same confrontation with her already in this, yeah. like, a couple episodes ago. So that doesn't play well because he already tried accusing her of that, and... You know, she already, of course, denied it and they had that whole conversation about it. So it doesn't, I don't know, it just, it seemed redundant to approach yeah, it again. I agree, which is kind of my problem with some of the things that happened in this episode is it's stuff that we're seeing for the second or even the third time in some cases. And, uh, you know, if you're going to show something multiple times, there has to be some kind of a progression or there has to be something different in each of those instances, you know, or else it does seem way too redundant. And to me, it wasn't, I guess, different enough, or it wasn't effective to, um, it, it didn't move anything, or it there was no point in rehashing it again, because there wasn't enough that changed because of yeah. it. I agree. Actually, I think you could have taken this scene completely out of the episode and yeah. you lose absolutely nothing. You lose nothing by not having the scene there. Yeah. So I it's agree. just a, it, it's just a strange scene. It's just a little bit odd to me. Yeah. Um, you know, it, the acting in it is fine. It's, it's great. It, it's, but it just is, again, it just kind of throws me through a little bit of a loop. Yeah. And then it leads us back into the gala where, you know, we see the man in black. We see William talking to his daughter, uh, his wife, Juliet, is drunk, and then we see that William makes his way over to the bar, which I think is a really cool thing, because he says, fuck it, and he orders a Macallan. And if you remember from the previous episodes, uh, he does not drink in the real world. He only drinks in Westworld. That's right, because his daughter actually even mentions that yeah. to him when they're sitting around the campfire. Yeah, so I thought that was kind of a neat little touch, neat little callback there. Of course, Ford is in there at the bar, and Ford begins speaking very cryptically. Um, Ford, we, we do get some information here. We know that uh, the man in black seems to dislike Ford. Uh, we know that there is some sort of agreement in place to where Ford can control the narratives, but leave the... Uh, leave what's going on in the valley alone. Right. But Ford seems to think that it is William who has violated that agreement because um, of the information that the project has been learning about its subjects. And then, of course, he gives him a copy of what we later find out to be his profile. Uh, he talks about how for a self-portrait, it's not that flattering. Right. And 
Yeah, I'm wondering what was Ford's ultimate motivation for showing that. Is it was that him revealing then, yeah, I know what you've been doing and I found it and here's what's been collected on you. Yeah, and you know what's what's really interesting about this scene too? There's actually something in here that I really don't like. Uh, I, I, and generally, I've loved the idea of having Ed Harris and Anthony Hopkins just chew up the scenery together because they're both tremendous actors. But they do this thing where, you know, he says, where Ed Harris says, you know, enough games and he walks away. And <laughs> Anthony Hopkins is like, oh no, William, maybe one final game. But he's saying it to nobody. And it's just this weird <laughs> scene that that's the kind of thing we've never really seen in Westworld. A character just kind of monologuing one line in this mustache twirly, <laughs> cheesy kind of way. It really bothered me when I watched it. It's a very soap opera move. Like, they yeah. do that kind of stuff in soap operas all the time. They do that, and then there's something that soap operas always do that I just, I can't stand because it's so stupid, but I understand why they do it. It's where you'll have two characters that are having a scene together, and they're talking, and one person will turn. So the the person that's talking now is closer to camera. The person that's listening is behind them, and they're delivering this 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 dialogue, this monologue straight to camera or facing the camera and the person that they're actually talking to, they're not even looking at them. And it's just so you can see both of their faces at the same time. But it's like, nobody does that in person. If I'm going to talk to you, I'm going to look at you. I'm not going to turn my back to you. And, but yeah, that and the empty monologues like that are such soap opera things and very cheesy. And yeah, it didn't land well for me either. Yeah, it just was a really, it was just a really odd thing to see in this show. It's just this weird, no, just maybe one more game. Like, what, <laughs> like, you're not, he's not talking to anybody. Yeah. He's in a bar, not talking to him. It's like that, that is just not something that this show does. Yeah. So again, I was a little bit lost here. It's part of that clunky stuff that, again, I love the show. I, I think this episode is pretty good, but it also is, has a lot of big glaring issues like that. I haven't looked, but do we know who wrote and directed this episode at all? It seems like um, Nolan and Joy have written a lot of this, but I'm wondering if they didn't write this episode because it seems so um, different from the rest of... I actually of think that, that... I don't know about the writer. I know that I believe this director has also directed other episodes of the show. I just yeah. don't know. I mean... For, I, I get the structure of it, kind of, but there's just a couple bits that I, that I can't get down with, and, uh, yeah. Well, I guess you can't hit it out of the park every time. You gotta strike yeah. out at some point. Uh, we see Bernard then go to try to reach Maeve. He can't get in the door, but Ford says, you're close enough, I got a message for her, uh, cool, she'll read it from your brain, and then Bernard bails to go down to, to, meet up with Elsie and they're going to head for the valley. Yeah. I, I don't know. I kind of, I, I thought that was a little weird as well. This Ford voiceover and she'll search your mind and she'll get it that way. I don't know why. I just thought that was a little. Well, weird. like if, if he doesn't need to, if he doesn't need to get all the way 
to her, why even go to the door to type your code in in the first place? That's That's true. There's weird little things like that. I mean, because we saw in the last episode that they can do this uh, host walkie-talkie thing where we had Akechita talking to Maeve through her daughter. You know, I don't... Does it only work with her daughter? Like, is that is that the, the... You have to be able to talk through something that has a connection to the other person. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, I mean, I feel like I'm nitpicking at this point, but it's just, I just thought that was like a, just another little weird thing. Well, something that's um, been not weird or I guess maybe disappointing is that we've had so many episodes now where Tandy Newton, where we have Maeve, who we both agree is one of the most exciting and dynamic characters and actresses in this entire series, has not had a line and has just been laying on the slab for a couple episodes. And it's like you have this dynamic person and she's just I hope they I hope they filmed all of her scenes all together because right. you know like do up the makeup just let me lay there and and look completely out of it and close my eyes open my eyes look around and do a a tight shot and be done with it. But Tandy Newton can do so much with no words at all. She does it in this episode. It. She did it in the last episode as well. She's really good. Um, with regards to this Bernard and Elsie scene, another thing that we do understand here that we do learn as an audience is that they have been replicating everybody's cognition and loading it into a giant server or onto a giant server that's called the Forge, which is like the cradle, only much larger. So that's where they have been, um, loading all the guests basically like their imprints their data guests individual data right which is what we saw uh what akechita saw Mm -hmm. so it looked like it was just piles upon piles of servers yep so that takes us back to the man in black and his daughter, and this is where she kind of gets him to spill the beans as to what was going on. Basically, um, you know, Emily's thoughts here are that the data will give everybody a second chance. It's going to uh, be a way to even give her mom a second chance, but they need every detail. You know, they need that internal process of cognition and that's where we find out that they imaged the minds using the hats that people chose when they entered westworld yeah i thought that was kind of interesting that they had some kind of scanner or recording device or whatever lodged inside i mean that's great because you know it's got direct contact into the brain or into the head they're wearing it all the time. And that's one of the things that you, you know, we've seen a couple times when you first head into Westworld. Pick your and hat. And make such a big deal out of it, too. Yeah. Yeah. About, you know, which hat. This is the most important choice you're going to make. But it turns out it didn't really matter because they were reading you one way or the other. Yep. And then people can be like, well, you know, what if they didn't wear a hat? You know what? Shut up. It's a sci-fi show. Uh, I actually think it's kind of a fun little, like, sci-fi device. Yeah, I didn't necessarily have a problem with that. I mean, because I, I think I'm going back and I'm trying to think of all the guests that we've seen outside of, like, William and, and Emily. And I think everybody was wearing some kind of a hat. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, my my favorite detail around this, I saw somebody point it out, and I saw it uh, posted online somewhere, is that if you remember the first episode of the season, where we see the drone host collecting DNA from the naked guy. Yeah. We're so focused on the drone host and the DNA collection, what we fail to miss is the entire wall behind the drone host is full of hats. Oh. It was really cool. They were hiding that in plain sight the entire time. Oh, So if you go back and you see the drone host collecting the DNA from that dude's dong, you can (laughs) see an entire wall of hats. Oh, that's good. See, I like that. And you know what, though? I, I don't have a problem, and I don't think it's cheesy or whatever, that that's how they were collecting things, a lot of the data. And I mean, because if you're going to do it and commit to it, and knowing that they kind of plunked it in there as a a little Easter egg, you know, in plain sight that we didn't pick up on from before, I I actually kind of like it. Yeah. Yeah, I do, too. I have no problem with it. Again, it's kind of silly sci-fi, but it's fun. Yeah. So, we also find out in this scene that Emily doesn't just want to bring her mother back. What she really wants to know is why she did it. And that's where we get this whole sequence that kind of gives us the why. Or at least most of the why. We kind of flash back to that gala where Juliet is drunk. Um, When they're at home, they're arguing. She's asking him what he does in the park. And talks about how he's the only one good at faking it. And basically, Emily walks in on this... A whole argument and wants to send her mom back to rehab. So this whole kind of family breakdown is happening here. And, you know, again, talking about muddy storytelling, this is another bit that I felt, again, kind of fell flat. And I, I think it could have or should have been really impactful. And I don't think it was executed. And I'm not just talking about at this point of her going, you know, refusing and not wanting to go to rehab, but but how that plays out later on in the episode. And I, I think it could have been a much bigger and impactful moment that kind of fell flat for me. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I think this is uh, this is Sella Ward, right? The actress here. And I think she's trying to sell this as best as she can. And I think the scene is pretty good. But we also haven't spent enough time with these people as a family to understand what the family dynamic is. We get some sense of it here. Um, yeah, yeah, it does kind of it it does kind of feel a little bit flat in some points. Um, you know, we also see him put her to bed. And he takes the copy of that profile that that Ford gave him and puts it into a copy of the book Slaughterhouse-Five. And when you see Slaughterhouse-Five in there, I think that's the homage that they're making with the nonlinear storytelling. Hmm. Because that's the way Slaughterhouse-Five was. It was nonlinear storytelling, a lot of false narrator in there, and that is essentially what's happening. This is like the Westworld version of Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah. I'm wondering, though, if if the impact wasn't as strong because we didn't spend any time with the wife prior to this episode, you know, to see her have this conflict and, and to have these issues that to have it just in one episode, uh, and, and the way that they, 
set it up. Like I said, it just, it wasn't impactful to me. And I, and I think it's something that should have been. And also, isn't this plot very similar to what happens in Inception? Which Jonathan Nolan was a part of, where Leonardo DiCaprio's wife killed herself too. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. A lot of similarity in there. Yeah. Huh. I think it was much more effective in that movie. You know, and then, of course, we get the scene where William and his daughter, they're having a drink and they're talking and we see the water dripping down on the table. It's it's uh, pieces of the, the scene that we saw earlier this season where the water's dripping off the chandelier in that kind of vignette that, you know, going up the stairs into the uh, bathroom where he sees the, the bathtub. And, you know, we know that's where she kills herself yeah but again like we've seen that before so i didn't understand the slow motion i didn't like like we know that happened so there's not a lot of emotional impact for something that we already know yeah it was that and then to me it was like so she killed herself because she doesn't want to go to rehab is that why? Is, like, to- no, no, that's not well, it. Well, no, I, I, I know that now, but because that gets revealed later on in the episode. Yeah. But at this moment, at when this they're moment, show- yeah, as the audience, we're still kind of not sure. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, that leads to um, back with Emily and her father in Westworld, where. You know, basically, he says, fuck you. He doesn't believe that she is Emily. Basically, doesn't he, doesn't he flat out say it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah not so even basically. He, he actually. Yeah, again, with this. It's like, we've, we've done this before, and I don't know why they're, they're trying it again. Well, I actually like this scene because this is where we get Emily's true motivation revealed, where he says, I'm going to expose you. I'm going to lock you up like you did to mom. And he's like, nope, like you did to mom. She talks about how she saw his profile and that he is in his very essence a lie. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, again, where I felt it just seemed really muddy because, you know, earlier we had her with Ghost Nation is like, no, he's my responsibility. I'm going to take him. What I'm going to do is worse than what you could have done. And then it's like, no, I want to save you. I want to get you out of here. And then it's, again, I want to get you out of here. And now it's like, no, I'm going to expose you. And it's like, she's but that's just going why. back and forth. It's not going back and forth. It's the, that's the, the fulfillment of her plan. She wants to save him and get him out of Westworld because she wants to expose him in the real world. Yeah. Because she wants to give him the, she wants him to face justice in the real world for the things that he's done. Right. Where he lives in a world consequence free, where he can be horrible and do things without consequence, but she wants to expose him in the real world. This is the, the revelation of her plan. Right. But to me, it just kind of left my head spinning. It's like, okay, well, what, what is it? What is it that you're doing? Okay. Is that, are you sticking with that now? Because every time we see her, it's a different motivation. And I was like, okay, is that, that's, that's the final, that's your final answer? That's where you're sticking? Okay. Yeah, I was actually good with that. I, 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 you know, finally kind of understood where it was going with her. Yeah. Um, you know, but then the QA team shows up. We see that they scan him. They scan her too. 
He takes the machine gun from one of the QA guys, wipes all those guys out. Because he he thinks they're hosts. Yeah. And then he ends up killing his own daughter. Yeah. And that, to me, that was was a shocker for me. Yeah. Yeah, it was was me too. Yeah, I couldn't believe they went that far with it. Yeah. He killed his own daughter. And I've heard people say that, you know, well, maybe she was a host. No, she wasn't a host. The story has no impact if she's a host. Right. You know, I don't think she was either. And I think that's part of the problem with them constantly bringing it up time and time again, where he's questioning if she's a host. You know, it's like, do it once and leave it. She's not. So move on. But the fact that they kept bringing it up makes people doubt it. But I guess... I mean, I guess I can write it off or I can uh, justify it by this is his, we're seeing his his decline further into madness. Yeah. And that's what we see here where there's people from QA. He doesn't believe that they're real. So he kills them. And that's why she's like, those were people. Those were real people. And then again, killing her because again, he doesn't think she's real either. Yeah. Well, and they're also, they were also toying with the audience on this a little bit too, uh, because they're trying to do this thing where they're trying to keep us in his point of view. Mm-hmm. We are trying, they're trying to keep us in his POV, which I don't, which I think you can debate about whether or not from a storytelling perspective, if that's actually a good choice. I think that is debatable. Um, but they're trying to keep us in his POV. And I think his psychology here is very important because you're yeah. right. This, I mean, this whole episode, I think, has built to this point. You know, there are a lot of people who are still asking questions about, you know, was Emily a host? Is he a host? Uh, I can tell you that the story doesn't make sense if either of them or both are hosts. They are both human. He has murdered his daughter. Right. The other thing that this particular scene tells me is that he does not last this season. His character is doomed to die. His redemption arc is over. That's it. Yeah. I don't think he survives the finale. I don't think so either, actually. So that scene was was a a shocker for me. I thought it was the best executed scene of the episode up to this point. But then we get this great scene with Maeve and Ford. Yeah, with uh, his message to her, which I really liked. Oh, it's awesome. And that's the the thing about Ford, man. He is, he. It, it's very much like a Greek god where he has all these very complicated relationships where he's not pure good and he's not pure evil either. Mm-hmm. And uh, he does this whole monologue about, you know, the men of stone and, and how Maeve was always his favorite of the hosts. And he didn't want to, con- it's hard to contemplate letting your child die. She came back to Westworld to save her daughter, to save her child, and he has stayed around to do the same. And basically gives her a little kiss on the head and restores all of her uh, admin privileges that she had previously. Yeah, I I actually kind of liked this. This was probably my favorite scene of the episode. This scene's great. Yeah. It's great. And I don't have we we haven't seen many scenes of Ford and Maeve together. There were a couple in the first season, but not much. No, uh uh-uh. uh. 
And uh, I really like it. I mean, these are two powerhouse actors. Tandy Newton is, even though she's got no dialogue, she's doing work here, folks. She is. And what is it that he says to her? Oh my gosh, I can't remember the beginning of the line, but it was something like, it's it's basically, it's, he's basically telling her like to go on and survive and, you know, don't, don't let them... I don't know, overtake her or uh, don't let them win, basically, is what he's telling her. Yeah, I think, yeah, it, it's talking about the, how they're going to destroy her. I mean, just uh, don't let them. Yeah, I, I loved it. Yeah. And and that that made me excited to see what's going to happen in the finale. Because up until this point in this episode, I'm like... I, it's, I don't. I don't know. I still don't know where they're going with the end game with this with this finale. But then, because of this scene, I'm like, I'm looking forward to the finale because I want to know what Maeve's going to do. Yeah. How is she going to take this back? Yeah. He also tells Maeve that she was the closest he ever got to having a child, and yeah. of all the hosts, she was his favorite. I thought that was awesome. Yeah. I'm wondering. Do you think? In essence, that scene was kind of Ford's goodbye. Well, I don't know, because he has another scene right after where it's a lot more unceremonious. Yeah. You know, uh, because in that, that following scene, we get Bernard and Elsie. They're kind of on the road. They stop to get ammo. And Bernard has this whole, you know, get out of my head thing. And he essentially removes Ford's code and Ford just kind of disappears. So yeah. it's not, it, it doesn't have that rah-rah kind of thing that it had with Maeve, where where he is kind of the angel helping Maeve in that scene. He is the devil on Bernard's shoulder trying to get him to kill Elsie in the next scene. Yeah. Which, I don't know. I, I don't know how I felt about Ford not even trusting Elsie. It's like, I don't trust any human. I don't care who they are. And I was kind of hoping... That maybe she was the one that he was kind of okay with or something, or that, I don't know, that he could see that she was good or genuine or was on the host's side or something. I don't know. I'm with you because I'm not understanding that storytelling device here either. Yeah. Because if Ford believed that Elsie should be dead... Why go through the whole rigmarole of knocking her out, chaining her up, only to have Bernard go get her? Right. And and leaving her with some power bars, some granola bars for a while to make sure. Right. I, I don't know. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, obviously, Ford thought that Elsie was needed. Has she fulfilled her purpose? I don't think so. What what could she, what did she do that Bernard couldn't have done on his own? You, or was it uh, I know that at that point Bernard was acting under Ford's direction. I'm wondering and I I would find it much more interesting if the fact that after he knocked out Elsie was he supposed to actually kill her? And did he go against Ford in not killing her and making sure that she had 
sustenance to stay alive. You know, I'm not going to kill you. But is that him going against Ford? I don't because know. that would fit if if Ford was like, okay, let's dispose of her. And it would fit if Ford didn't have Clementine bring him back to that cave. That's true. Yeah, that doesn't. None of that makes any sense. Yeah, it doesn't track with me at all. I didn't yeah. understand that that part of it. Yeah, I don't know. And so, yeah, and I think, I think the, the fact that we have him, you know, helping Maeve while also in the next scene suggesting that Bernard kill Elsie, I think that is that mirror image that, you know, they used to think there were two fathers, one above, one below, but one was just the reflection staring back. Uh, the idea that, that Ford can do acts of good and acts of evil. I think that is, very much in line with the themes that have been established already this season. Yeah, I I think you're spot on with that. I mean, that's that's the only thing that I can think of that would, uh, I, I guess, kind of justify all of this back and forth that we've been seeing. Yeah, is to fit within that theme. So then we get the man in black contemplating his own suicide. Uh, he has the gun to his head. He starts then questioning the nature of his own reality. And then that's when we as the audience are filled in uh, as to the rest of the pieces of this puzzle. Why his wife killed herself. And, you know, how Emily got the profile to begin with. That, you know, he monologues about how he never really belonged to that world. He talked about the the darkness, the stain the darkness that was always there. And this is where we get the kind of the rest of the story about the man in black. Okay. So with it, with your excellent observation skills and note taking and break this one down for me, because I was left a little confused by what they were trying to tell us in this. And again, I'm just going to chalk it up to jet lag, but I'm going to need a, I'm going to need from you a good breakdown of this scene, everything that he says and what's happening, because I was left kind of scratching my head a little bit. Well, I mean, this is the breakdown of this individual. This is the full breakdown. And maybe this was Ford's game all along to completely deconstruct this man and to essentially turn him into you know, somebody no different than the woodcutter who went cuckoo, uh, or the way they used to bring these coasts in for, for, um, updates and whatnot. And they would say, have you ever questioned the nature of your own reality? Well, now he has been broken down to the point where he is questioning the nature of his own reality, questioning whether or not he himself is real. And, you know, you see him start to take the knife and dig into his own arm as if he's going to find some sort of port in there. And that reminded me of the scene in Ex Machina, in that great film that came out a couple years back about a guy giving a Turing test to um, a robot that, that looks human. And he starts to question his own reality and his own existence himself. Yeah. So I think that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, I, I did too. And I'm, I'm wondering though, if, if some people saw this scene 
and uh, and because I know it had been speculated before, people thought maybe the man in black was was a host as well. And if by them seeing this, and we see him start to cut into his arm, but we don't see him like tearing through tendons, I actually thought I think that would have been really cool <laughs> if we saw yeah. him like looking for a port in his arm and we don't see it. But I'm I'm wondering if the fact that they just show him take the knife to his arm, but we don't see what happens, if there are people that still think that he's a host. There are. There are still people that think he's a host. I think this episode wholly 100% confirms that he's not because it just doesn't make story sense for him to be a host. No, and I I don't. Yeah, I don't think so either. But, okay, so because it's talked about in this scene, um, and I was mentioning before, I um, didn't really sit well with me, the whole reason that his wife committed suicide. So we know that she takes his profile and she puts it into a, you know, sets it on this little computer and it's able to read it. So she ultimately ends up committing suicide because now she can see the real person that he is, that he's this horrible person that's done all these horrible things. And that's why she commits suicide. I think there's probably a little bit more to it than that. I don't think that it's really, I mean, she obviously does have some of her own issues, but I, the way I think the way she sees it is, you know, she's a person who has suffered a lot of different loss and she's watched her loved ones deteriorate, um, whether it was from drug abuse or whether it was from illness. And then she, uh, sees her husband who has this kind of inner darkness and she even mentions it earlier. She's like, he's a, he's a virus that infected my brother and infected my father and is now infecting me. Uh, like I, yeah, I don't, I think there's, there are more contributing factors to what she was going through, but I think when she, I think she feels in that moment as though she is trapped and there is not, there is no way out for her. Right. And this is, you know, what I was saying before that it kind of fell flat for me. It's something that I thought should have been more impactful. But it it didn't to me. Yeah. I, 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 mean, I don't know why. And I don't know if it's I, I don't know if it was muddy storytelling. I don't know if it's because we haven't spent any time with her. Uh, I, I I'm not sure. But it didn't land the reveal of this didn't land um with me at all i can see that i think that there's enough story in it to make it a very powerful emotional moment in in a world where you have these people that you know are look at these guys that are immensely powerful and abusers and nobody realizes that they're abusers yeah Uh, this is somebody who has like these really horrible tendencies another thing that is revealed when she's looking at that profile is that he suffers from paranoia from really really high levels of paranoia it's one of the things that's kind of broken down on the tablet when she's looking at it yeah so it's i don't know i think in some ways it is um it, like there is a powerful story there i think if you didn't come away with it feeling the emotional impact i can totally see that too and i think some of that does stem from the fact that we didn't get a lot of time with Juliet's character. Yeah. We didn't get a lot of, enough time to really uh empathize with her. Right. And um 
Yeah, it uh, just I'm just repeating myself now at this point. But yeah, it just wasn't impactful. It didn't have it was kind of like the reveal. And I was like, okay. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if that says a lot about me or the fact that it was not strong storytelling. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, I was I, I was not as affected as I, I think I should have been by it. Yeah, but essentially this scene is the unraveling of William, the unraveling of the man in black. He has completely kind of gone to the other side now. He is, he is, he has lost his mind. Yeah, he's batshit crazy right now. Mm -hmm. And then we uh, end up with that final scene of Teddy and Dolores at that abandoned house, which kind of symbolizes the ruins of their own relationship, if you wanted to look at it that way, as they're standing in that kind of dilapidated structure uh we do get the realization that teddy is uh fully awake now yep. he goes he has his memories of his kind of birth if you want to call it that where he talked about seeing um dolores for the first time and sure enough he ends up taking out a gun and shooting himself i was not expecting that at all me neither me neither. And you know what? What? And that, that's the other part of this too. Is this is a this is another thing that I don't think resonated as well with the audience as it should have. Yeah. Because now I and and I'm about ninety percent certain here. Teddy's dead. That's it. Yeah. Like that's it. Unless there is some uh, Teddy, you know cognition or dna out there in the forge he is not coming back because there are no backups deaths are real now well i think because of that scene that we got with clementine that they can be resurrected but then they're just like host zombies but not anymore not anymore there's nothing to back them up from they won't have their personality but they can still reanimate them because they reanimated Clementine, and then they showed all of those hosts that were dead that were able to wake up and kill each other. So they can be reanimated. That's why I'm saying they're like a zombie. They're reanimated, but they're not going to have their personality. Yeah, so we could I... see him again, but he's, you know, we we know that he is somehow drowned in the valley. Well, because... we know that his body's there, but right. we also know that she's near the valley. But not in the valley, near it. And what she could do, she's going to drag him over there and throw him into it. I mean, he's got to get there somehow. Yeah, I don't see that. I don't see just zombie Teddy walking around. Maybe I think that's what's going to happen. I mean, that's what they're. That's what they set up with the whole thing with Clementine. So we're going to see these zombie hosts. I don't know what yeah. else to call them, but yeah, I don't think it's the same case though. I, I think. Mm. I mean, I don't know that it's. I don't know. Maybe, but I doubt it. Um. But yeah, I, I kind of want, you know, we do get the idea that Teddy's awake. And one of the things that I wanted to, to, to talk about with this episode and with what the show has done, you know, we have talked about all the different instances of hosts awakening and what it is. Is it the maze or is it, you know, um, is it something else that causes these awakenings? But one of the interesting things that the showrunners here have set up is that personhood is based off of memory. Yeah. Even in this episode, it is said by the man in black that who you are is a collection of choices. I think you can also kind of 
bend that a little bit and say it's a collection of memories. Yeah. You are your memories. And, you know, Teddy achieved personhood through his memories. He doesn't finally have that awakening until he remembers. The same thing with the Ketchido last week. It was the same thing with Maeve. And it also made me think about Game of Thrones again, because we talk about Bran Stark and how Bran Stark's power as a green seer makes him everybody because he retains everybody's memories. He is everybody and nobody at the same time. And memory is like kind of the defining characteristic of personhood. And I think that's the thing that they're, they're telling us overall in the show. That you're not a person until you have memories and experiences. Well, then I'm screwed because my memory is shot. <laughs> <laughs> my memory sucks. <laughs> you know, no, another, I, go ahead. I, no, I just, I, I, I find it very interesting. Um, I was not expecting this with Teddy. And like I said earlier in the episode, I thought that he wasn't awake. And there's been a number of occasions throughout this entire season that I was grappling with and wondering if he was really awake or not. And, you know, like I said earlier in this episode, I, I thought that he wasn't because of uh that scene with ghost nation is it to me it looked like the guy from ghost nation commanded him to you know put his gun down and you know here we finally learn no well he actually is awake and uh yeah again with that back and forth um i don't know i guess just muddy storytelling that just had me confused maybe it wasn't really the jet lag maybe it was just bad writing this go around well, no, i i mean there are things that i think are a little bit clunky in here some of the storytelling is weird some of the editing is weird some of the writing is a little bit strange but uh there are a couple of things that i do really like here i like the man in black emily thing where he ends up killing her and now is is basically in a tailspin um how it's kind of um, the, the darkness that he has always talked about, the, the darkness that he always felt rising, that Westworld helped kept at bay, has now risen and overtaken him completely. Yeah. Um, I also like how, you know, they tie all these, these things about existence and personhood into your individual memories. The other thing that I really like that they do in this episode is kind of the way that Every character faces this existential crisis in this episode and has to decide how or if they are going to move on. Teddy has an existential crisis about being under Dolores' control. He decides not to go on. The man in black has an existential crisis about the fact that he has just killed his daughter and now he literally does not know if he is a human or a host. He has to decide if he wants to move on. Maeve is facing her own uh, mortality where she knows she's about to be killed she has to decide if she wants to go on yeah. bernard has ford in the, his head telling him to commit a to, to to commit a murder of an innocent person and he has to decide how he goes on so all these characters are faced with these existential choices and crises and i actually think that is a really cool aspect of this particular episode all the character arcs are still tied together still keeping up with that mirroring thing because again this show is is showing us all the the different reactions the array of reactions when faced with similar circumstances yeah i'm 
it's it's rare for me to watch Westworld and for me to be kind of disappointed in an episode. And like I said, this one kind of fell flat for me. And uh, in some ways, it has me questioning or wondering how this finale is going to be. And I guess, you know, if like what you had said before, I guess I blame uh, Game of Thrones because usually, the as you had mentioned, the penultimate is just this holy shit, amazing thing that happens. And this one was kind of wah, wah. It was fell a little short. And I guess you can only go up from there. Uh, but there, I mean, there's so much interesting stuff that seems to be culminating and happening that's going to lead us into this finale. But at the same time, it almost seems that there's so much still that, that, that they need to address or, you know, my goodness, what's going to happen in this finale? Cause are they going to be able to fit it in as I haven't even looked to see it. How long is this episode going to be? The finale is 90 minutes. And I think you're right. They ah. have a lot they have a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. I thought we would at least see the timelines get truncated a little bit, but nope, they still got to do all that too. Yeah. But I also think that, that we, we might be going in a really bizarro direction here in the finale. If you look at the, uh, just the preview for neck for, for the finale, uh, there's a, it looks like we're heading in a really bizarre direction. So who knows? I'm excited to see it though. I, Again, I have a lot of issues with this episode. I found it underwhelming on the whole. However, I do think there is still a lot of really great stuff in here. So my opinion on it is just very mixed. I feel like you're you're kind of uh, echoing some of that same stuff. Yeah, very much so. But that doesn't uh, it doesn't mean I'm not looking forward to next week. And I actually just got uh, even more excited about it when you told us just now that it's 90 minutes. I did not know that. And that well, uh, I'm excited about that. The other thing, too, is it is really hard to come off of an episode like Kiksuya. Oh, man. Where it's one of the best episodes that they've ever done. And now you got to get back to it and follow that up. So I think that there's an expectation there as well that, that maybe this episode stuff suffers from. Or these episodes are following in the theme that they've been doing this entire season of that mirror you know, the yin and yang. We had the best episode of the show ever. And now I think this was one of the worst of the episode of the uh, season ever. So they're right next to each other. So it fits in with their theme. But it will definitely be a lot of fun to talk about the finale next week. I can't wait. All right. So you guys have heard our thoughts on... Uh, Westworld Season 2, Episode 9, Vanishing Point, but we'd like to hear yours as well, so hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at NerdFlixChill. You can also find our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, and if you are listening on one of those platforms, throw us a five-star review. You can also find us at lrmonline.com. Wanted to thank you guys for joining us. We appreciate you listening. Until next week, may the Force be with you, because the night is dark and full of terrors. <laughs>